In the summer of 1988, my wife and I led a mission trip in the country of Zambia, South Central Africa. And as we were uh, gathering this team together of uh, 21 high school and college students and an evangelist with us and a couple of assistant leaders, 26 of us total, uh, we flew from uh, Missouri where we just had a training camp for eight days and then flew to New York and then on to uh, Lusaka, the capital, and stayed overnight there and then traveled nine hours through the Kafui National Park, which is the largest game park on the continent of Africa. It was very disappointing. There were, uh, the animals were all far away at the watering holes and it was the dry season, so we didn't see anything. But uh, <clears throat> we went out to this remote place, went through the little town of Kaoma and then uh, checked in with the, the officials there so they knew what these uh, visitors were doing and then uh, traveled 35 miles across the desert where there was no road and the missionary that was hosting us and taking us simply knew the way. And we ended up in this little village called Luwampa. And uh, it's only a village because missionaries had been there to establish a hospital. And so villagers from around the region had moved closer. And so we had uh, six villages of people who did not follow Christ, who were all around, and then we had one more village where there were some being trained to be pastors and evangelists at a Bible school. And so our purpose was to go there to uh, build a couple of small homes for these people in the, uh, the Christian village, and then to go do outreach in the villages around us with our evangelist, who was the first evangelist in that part of the world in 46 years. Uh, the, because all the missionaries that were there were medical missionaries, with the exception of one translator who was translating the Bible into uh, local languages. And on uh, our first full day there, as we were going over to that Christian village, word traveled back to us very quickly that the girls on our team were, they were wondering about them because they were wearing pants. And so the missionaries explained to us that they're asking, why aren't they wearing skirts? Because in their uh, culture, if you only wore pants, you were looked at as having loose morals. And so our girls are going like, okay. So we sat down, had a powwow, and the girls talked it out. And on their own, they decided, then we're going to wear a skirt over our pants all summer. We're going to be there six weeks. And so out of the love of Christ, they decided to do that. And the principle for that starts right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Because it's all about showing deference. Most of us, uh, when we think in terms of this chapter, we often think, really, does somebody today have an issue with uh, meat that is sacrificed to an idol? Think about where our food supply comes from. Now, Mandy, would you show the video, please? That's my friend's farm in Missouri. 
That's my friend Alan, my closest friend in the world. Brilliant guy and uh, quite the uh, hardworking man. The dog is even named Sissy. All right. <clears throat> but how many of us will go to Butcher Boy or Market Basket or someplace else local and say, I'm really concerned about that beef. I'm wondering if when it came from that guy's farm in Missouri and it went to the slaughterhouse in Iowa and then got shipped out here to Butcher Boy, I wonder, was any of that meat sacrificed to idols? I might have a problem here. Now, none of us think that way because we don't have that issue here. On the other hand, there are missionaries that occasionally will run into this, including my own sister-in-law, my wife's sister, and her husband, who served 18 years in Morocco. And except it wasn't cows, it was goats, but they ran into situations that are in that kind of realm. <clears throat> so they would always go vegetarian when they were invited to someone's home. In chapters uh, 8 through 10 in this uh, book of 1 Corinthians, especially the second half of 10 that we're going to leave, for, of course, for Pastor John uh, several weeks down the road. Paul uses a question that the Corinthians had asked him about meat to address the larger issue of Christian liberty. In Corinth, there were numerous temples that were dedicated to various idols, and there were animals that were sacrificed there, very much like the Jewish people. A portion of the meat would be consumed on the altar, of course, and another portion would be given to the priest. And the remainder of the sacrifice would be sold in the markets, especially close by. Some of those markets were even in the idol's temple, as we see there in verse 10. And so it's concerning the meat that is sold in these markets that the Corinthians questioned Paul. In verse 1, it says now about food sacrifice to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge pops up while love builds up. So here, Paul, before answering the Corinthians' question concerning me, he begins by addressing the foundational issue. At the very beginning of this discussion of liberty, Paul makes it clear that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You know, as we all are familiar, 1 Corinthians 13 is commonly called the love chapter of the Bible. But this chapter certainly is love in action, as we will see. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now certainly, we have all run into people who think that they know it all, right? They tend to drive us bonkers. They're in every realm of society, and we're all familiar with the kind. They tend to look down their nose at us, those of us who are common folks. Uh, even outside of their realm of expertise, they seem to know everything, or at least they think they do. Sometimes I want to take those people where I used to go tromping around the mountains of Wyoming, where I used to live out there, and walk them around for a day, and then near nightfall say, by the way, can you get us back to camp? Then we'll find out how much they really know. With spiritual topics like this one, someone may have indeed studied deeply and have some excellent knowledge about this subject, but their knowledge needs to be put in a proper place. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. There's no room for arrogance or an inappropriate attitude, even if it is filled with truth. 
Can you imagine some people, a Christian brother coming along and, who has a lot of knowledge about the subject and saying, well, yeah, come on. 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I'm sorry, 1 John 4.4 4 tells us that the one who is in you is greater than the one that is in the world. So what's the big deal? You see, anybody with significant knowledge of Scripture needs to have their whole life integrated with the whole picture. And frequently, maybe even I could say normally, that comes with a price. Paul, because of his great knowledge, had to have humility added to his life with suffering. He had his thorn in the flesh, as well as his beatings and multiple uh, mistreatments and shipwreck and imprisonment and hunger and more. Or when we read about John, for example... Uh, who wrote the Gospel of John and three letters that we have and had the revelation from God. He also suffered much and he was exiled on Patmos. A a different time, he was boiling oil, which he survived. And there are others as well who have had great humility that has worked on their lives because of their great knowledge so that they have humility as part of their bigger picture. So let's take a moment to talk about where knowledge should be in the bigger picture of our lives. Mandy, would you show, please, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. And I have to pull out my own copy of it so I don't have to turn around. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, Perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and a godliness, mutual affection, and a mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you have knowledge of your subject matter, you see where it fits? It's in that chain, all right. But there's much more significant things that we need to be sure to have in the bigger picture of our lives. And so, by the way, this message could end right here. That would be plenty, but we're not going to stop here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we read those starting at verse 4 then. So then about eating food, sacrifice to idols... We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and there's no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live, and there is no one but one Lord, Jesus Christ, 
through whom all things came and through whom we live. Basically, Paul is saying, it's no big deal to eat sacrificed uh, meat that is sacrificed to idols, for we know that there is only one true God, our Father, and there's only one Lord, Jesus. But as it says in verse 7, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that they eat eat sacrificial food. They think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. You see, although eating meat offered to idols is not a threat to the true God, And although eating meat offered to idols won't affect me personally, I need to be aware that it may affect those people who are around me. And it's likely that some of the new Christians in Corinth used to worship these false gods. They are remembering that it used to be part of their old false worship. Or simply they know other people who are involved in that way. And in verse 8 and 9, But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we, do, if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So basically, Paul is saying, we know that the eating of meat makes us neither better or worse in God's sight. However, our knowledge must be tempered by a higher principle, and that is love. And this is the key thought in this chapter. We must be aware that there are people who might struggle with seeing us enjoy a T-bone steak that was from the same cow that was offered to an idol. We must be mindful of those who are weak. Some of these may be weak because they're new in the faith. Others because of something painful from their past. But regardless of why, the directive is very clear. And verse 10 and 11. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. You see, more important than knowledge that I'm free to have a burger is the realization that my liberty could adversely affect my weaker brother. I might be able to talk him into participating in an activity that's fine for me, but if he does, he may later feel that his walk has been compromised or that God won't hear his prayers. That's why I never try to talk anyone out of a personal conviction, even if the conviction seems legalistic or silly to me. I'll discuss it with him if he asks me to, but I won't encourage him to abandon his convictions on the basis of my freedom. A long time ago, when I was a sophomore in college, that was always a long time ago, <laughs> this same time of year, February, I, um, I tried out for the college baseball team. I made the team, and I was excited about that. I had a few weeks, and uh, I was going to be a starting outfielder, and um, I was a pretty good hitter and kind of an average uh, fielder. And... I got bronchitis after about three weeks because the weather, well, it's the same as here, you know, kind of cold, right? And so I just picked up one of those things, and all of a sudden, I couldn't play baseball. 
doctor said, no, nah, you can't be outside, buddy. So I got stuck inside. And I was full of energy. I was 20 years old, so I picked up table tennis. And I played table tennis in the dorm five hours a day or a little more. You know what? I got pretty good at it. In fact, I worked really hard at it, and I got better, and I got better, and I got better. And over the next two years, I played in a league. This is in Fresno, California. I played in a league that had about 350 players. And we were all very aware of where we were as a team and where we were as individuals, because it was posted every week, blah, blah, blah. My, my teammate was the California State champion. Never been beaten in the United States. He was from Nigeria. His name's Ayadele Oni. And uh, I was the number four guy on the team. And I was ranked about 30th. And I used to enjoy traveling to other places where I had friends at their colleges, and I would deliberately bring my, my uh, table tennis paddle with me just so I could beat the best players at the other universities. I did that once at UC, uh, University of California at Davis, where my friend was uh, in a uh, frat house. And he said, oh, can you go beat that guy? He said, oh, no problem. So I go and I beat him, you know, and, and oh, thanks. And that same friend, Jim, he's on a mission trip in Kenya right now. But um, after this arrogance was going on in my life uh, for two years, uh, I uh, I'd met Pam in the meantime, and uh, I was enjoying showing off for my new girlfriend, who I married, of course, two years later. The next month, we're coming up on 42 years, and uh, shows your, her patience. <laughs> and I do a decent job taking out the trash. Uh, but um, when I was in the Word one morning, I was reading one of those portions about humility and about the ugliness of pride. And the Holy Spirit convicted me. Oh, it was hard. And the Lord told me, you need to put the paddle down. For two years, I didn't touch it. I, the kind of game I played took a lot of spins and blah, blah, blah. It took a lot of practice. And so I, never, I had actually friends who were going like, what's the big deal? It's only table tennis. I got, it was a big deal because of my arrogance. So when you run into someone who has a conviction from God, go ahead and let them have that conviction. Don't try to talk them out of it. In context to what we're dealing with here, I have a friend who, uh, uh, same age as me, his name's Kevin, and uh, he's an alcoholic. And... We used to do men's camp weekends when we were in the mountains of uh, Wyoming. We do one or two a summer. We bring our guns, 30 or 40 guys, and we go out to a meadow and shoot at targets and have a good time. And we'd have spiritual sessions, and then we'd sit around the fire at night and take our, our younger guys, or uh, our sons, and put them around the fire and then give them life advice. And um, Kevin used to talk to them about alcohol. He'd say, guys, all these other men, they probably don't have a problem, but I do. And so I can't touch that stuff. So if you run into that issue, make sure you get help. And by the way, all those other guys, they were applying the principle of 1 Corinthians 8 and not bringing anything to that, that camping weekend because it would cause Kevin 
potentially to stumble. And that's the point of this bigger picture. And the same thing with the girls that wore the skirts in Zambia. We uh, had them going out to the villages with our evangelist, about five or six at a time, and if they hadn't worn skirts, if they had been sending a mixed message saying, I'm loose, uh, and by the way, the gospel of Jesus Christ, you wonder, what would have happened? 225 people came to faith in Christ that summer. And it was truly remarkable. But the principle is involved of making sure that we have uh, deference, loving deference being shown to those that are around us. You see, Jesus cares about every single one of us, including the weakest that is among us. And so before we go on saying, I'll do what I want, I'll go where I want, I'll eat what I want, I must realize that if I am flaunting my liberty and boasting of my maturity, I knowingly cause my weaker brother to stumble. If I'm doing that, I sin against Christ, as it says there in verse 12. And so that's why Paul says, man, if meeting meat's going to cause you to stumble, I'll be vegetarian the rest of my life. We need to be sure to heed this in all the big areas and little areas of our life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, another section of Paul's words wraps this up beautifully. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. My friends, we can do this. We can do this. Lord, please help us to apply this scripture day after day in the circles where we travel. We realize that, uh, that by your grace we can do it, and we thank you for that. I pray. In your name, Jesus, amen.